Good evening. This is Cinema 60. What's the matter? You blind or something? Where do you think you're going? Ah, don't give me none of that, you muscle. You drive around here, nobody thinks that. The light was still green, he says. Red, it was green. Ooh, people. Wow. What'd you expect, herrings? Look at them. A band of cutthroats. You ever see such hatred? Huh? You know, if I so much as ask one of these people for the time of day to turn into a lynch mob? Oh, everybody wants to be friendly, only nobody's willing to make the first move. Why don't you say hello to this nice man over here? He'd appreciate it. Him? That's Dracula's uncle, the wolf man. <laughs> the only thing he'd appreciate would be a nice fresh cup of blood. Oh, it's so easy. All you have to do is say hello. Watch. <clears throat> hello. What'd you say? Oh, easy. I just said hello. Hello? Hello? Did you just say hello? This is the first time in 30 years that a stranger's ever said hello to me on the street. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. We have a special guest today. It's a guest episode. It's a guest episode. And you know who we have? We have Zoe Rogan, better known as the uh, letterbox extraordinaire Zoe Loves Film is her username. Hi, Zoe. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, I was I was very excited to, to talk to you because um, we love your reading your letterbox reviews and you seem to watch so many of the same movies that we watch. And you're always so nice to Cinema 60. And we figured, let's talk to Zoe. I bet she has some really cool things to say. Yeah, I love Cinema 60. It is probably, like, genuinely my favorite podcast. I love it. Aw, thank you. Oh, thanks. That really, that gen- that means a lot. And, uh, and so Zoe just graduated from college. And so that puts the three of us in this unique position of not any of us having been, you know, around in the 60s and yet all being obsessed with the 60s. Bart is Gen X. I'm millennial. And Zoe is Gen Z. Why did you get into movies, Zoe? That's a good question. I wasn't like I wasn't into movies as a kid that much. Like I watched we had like VHS tapes of the Disney movies, you know, and I liked those. But it wasn't really until middle school that I got kind of into movies. And even then, like I wasn't really I just watched. Do did you guys ever this might be a Gen Z thing, but like the YouTube channel Watch Mojo. Have you heard of that? No. It's like, it's just one of those stupid, like, top 10 channels. And they would do, like, top 10 horror movies, top 10 old movies, top 10 movie villains, stuff like that. And I found those so interesting because of the, like, the cultural conversation around the movies that I didn't know about because I wasn't alive. And the way that they, these movies were important in pop culture in a way that I couldn't experience firsthand, but I could secondhand. And that like really interested me. And so I started, you know, making lists of movies I wanted to see. And then kind of getting into high school, I started to actually get into watching movies. And from there, like I found my way to classic film and Letterboxd and just like finding kind of my niche and what I was really interested in. That's really interesting. So, so it was through YouTube that you got interested in film, but at the, in the same time, it sounds a lot like how Bart 
got into movies, which was through these sort of top lists of the top hundred films you have to watch kind of thing. Right, Bart? Yeah. Different technology, but the same idea. Like, yeah, these, these are the, the movies you have to see. You're not educated in film unless you've seen these. And I would just go through guidebooks, Danny Perry's book and, uh, you know, just any film book I could find and just, you know, highlight things and, uh, and make lists that way. I know your, your story is a little different, Jenna, but you're still a list maker. You still, you still create watch lists of what you want to see, right? I mean, my watch list on Letterboxd is definitely where movies go to die, <laughs> <laughs> which I like, I've had people like reach out to me very, very friendly being like, Hey, I saw this was on your watch list. Like, you know, do you want, you know, I can lend you the DVD or something. And it's like, that's awesome. But I don't know if I actually want to watch it like tomorrow. I just, <laughs> I want to just leave it there in the graveyard. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, so that's interesting. So then, so then Zoe, like, it, so you got into 60s films sort of naturally through classic film? Yeah, I think so. Because I started with a lot of the like huge classics I watched. I think like one of the very first, well, so I watched uh, How to Marry a Millionaire in uh, middle school because it was on Netflix when Netflix had old movies on it. And I was like, really fascinated by it and very enamored with like Lauren Bacall who I had never seen before and she was just so gorgeous oh, yeah. um and then well, Marilyn Monroe is the way a lot of us got into classic yeah. films mm-hmm. <laughs> hard to resist her Betty Grable is is there she's fine <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah then from there like I watched Streetcar Named Desire I watched uh Gone with the Wind like it happened one night all these huge movies that it's like you gotta watch it it's it's one of the classics and then from there like I found actors I liked and I I had um some guidance from I did a, a film camp at uh, University of Washington when I was going into my junior year of high school it was during the summer and we just watched kind of whatever she wanted to watch which was great because we watched a bunch of classic movies I had never seen we saw the apartment and a letter to three wives and the best years of our lives like movies that have totally stuck with me and become like all-time favorites of mine so it it, like was gradual but then by like late high school yeah I was like really just entrenched in old Hollywood movies mostly what do you consider your uh I guess area of specialty like to based on your reviews it seems like you're you're drawn to classic hollywood melodramas and, and that sort of thing mainly is it is that is that how you see it too or yeah i think that would probably be the area that i am drawn to most and know most about but i guess like in recent years i have started to branch out into learning a little bit more about foreign film i, I guess it's like always shifting but yeah, like melodrama, especially classic melodrama from Hollywood is kind of like my my spot. Mm-hmm. Do you find that so, you know, if you're you were doing like programs and things, do you have like a core group of friends that were all into this? Is that something or is this something that you've been doing on your own and just sort of following your heart? Mostly doing on my own. I um, kind of like make my friends go along with me. Um, (laughs) they're very good sports. My, my best friend, Bellamy, who's also on Letterboxd, she is also, she loves film, but they're more into, uh, making film and just like, they have a wider range of stuff they're interested in, but 
I will make them watch weird stuff with me all the time. And same with my my like friends at school who aren't really into movies, but I will make them watch what I want to watch. <laughs> so okay. I was curious about that because like, you know, the question sort of comes down to, and this is something that Bart and I have discussed before, but like, how do you get people interested? Because it always feels like, you know, as I think, and this is a continuous, like every, every generation has the same story of like, people don't care about the past anymore, you know, and people were saying this in the thirties and the sixties and, you know, it's like similar, you know, yada, yada from, from everyone. And so, I mean, like there is definitely like when you're looking, you know, at your own generation or even, you know, in any generation after yours, like, you know, you're always like, Oh, those kids, they don't know anything, you know, like what, but so I'm kind of curious, like, is this like, have you found that there's a way to get other people of your generation really interested? Do you think that, do you feel that your generation is is not interested in classic Hollywood? Like our, like, you know, how, what, what is it? What's the, what's the temperature of the room for you? Mm-hmm. I think like in the classroom, there has not been a lot of interest from other people in older movies. At least that's just what I've experienced Uh, one of my professors like talked about presentism and just like you know seeing seeing things as just always progressing including like movie quality and how I think that's how a lot of people operate at least in my classes but I think people still do recognize when they see something really impressive in an old movie even if it they're, they're couching it and like oh that's good for something that was made a long time ago so I think there are entry points I think Hitchcock is a great entry point Audrey Hepburn, musicals, stuff like that. Uh, Varda is probably a really, I think she would be a really good entry point for people to get into older movies. But I think on social media, then we see like a really strong community of classic film fans who are younger and social media, like fueling that and helping us all find each other and helping more people get into it. So the classroom, I, I see it less, but online, I see a lot of community building of fans of old movies who are my age yeah that's so true i mean letterbox has been a godsend for me as far as meeting other people that are like like-minded number one but even just meeting people in new york who actually go to movies mm-hmm. it's funny i mean like you know i as much as i love movies a, the, a lot of my my friends are not really movie lovers uh, you know that i people that i know in new york city and and you know the, i have friends who are that like uh, my friend Veronica, who runs uh, back row with me, she lives in San Francisco. So it's like, you know, I don't even have like the the people to and Bart lives in Maine. So it's like, you know, nobody's ever, you know, near each other. But it, it's so it's been wonderful to have letterbox to like, just even connect and, and even like, you know, leaving comments and stuff like it, it's awesome. I mean, that that's something that I've always enjoyed about the internet. But uh, it is really it's pretty cool. Like, have you met anyone off of letterboxd in person i have not but i have like done skypes with people where we like watched a movie at the same time and i follow a few people from letterboxd on instagram and like on our private instagrams as well so i you know i keep up with them and stuff like that and like consider them friends that's cool yeah well we met through letterboxd jenna that's why this that's how this show came to be yeah, which is funny because I was just I was just telling this story was that, you know, like you ran a movie rental place and I was renting movies from you for years and years. And I never made an effort to speak to you because I said, I he runs a movie. Place. 
this guy's going to be a jerk. I don't want to talk to him. And I was. <laughs> and he was a jerk. So, you know, there you go. So you you mentioned, uh, you know, getting into actors as a way to get into 60s movies. And uh, I know that you're a Dean Martin fan. I am, How did yes. you get into Dean Martin? I watched Bells Are Ringing, actually. I had never seen him in anything else. I knew nothing about his star persona. Like I knew what the Rat Pack was in a general way. But I just watched Bells Are Ringing and like became obsessed for six months. <laughs> what is it about Dean Martin? He sent you on a two-year marathon of watching his movies, Jenna. <laughs> oh, it was more than two years. It was like 2018 when I was watching the OSS 117 movies. The but not the not the original ones, the has a Jean Duchardin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that that opening scene where there's it's it's Dean Martin singing and he's like, you know, partying in the ski loft and all of these women get shot. <laughs> I was like this this scene like totally captured me this like really corny intro. And then I was started to like think about this Dean Martin song and then like it just like it spiraled. Suddenly I was like listening to Dean Martin all the time. And then I was like, let me watch these Dean Martin movies. And then that like turned into the whole Martin and Lewis thing. What is it about Dean Martin? He's got something. I also it was in 2018 that I got into Dean Martin, like February of 2018. I watched Bells Are Ringing for the first time. So there was something in the air. Yeah. Bart. You just missed out. <laughs> Maybe you're, so. you know, you just because, you know, you are an Italian man. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think maybe if, uh, I don't know, Ocean's Eleven wasn't my introduction to. Oh, you know, it was my introduction to Dean Martin in film, the Cannonball Run movies. Oh, That's Jesus. probably why. I haven't seen much. Old and really leathery. I haven't seen much past 1965 with him. Don't. Yeah. yeah don't <laughs> don't, don't do it. it. I think well, he peaks with uh, with bells are ringing and it's all downhill from there. But no, there's I'm, some decent there's some decent movies like Kiss Me Stupid. Yeah, no, Kiss I'm Me um, Stupid. You, are you a fan? I have seen it once and I had no idea what I was getting myself into, and I was horrified. But that was like five <laughs> years ago, and I think about it all the time. So I feel like if I rewatch it, I would probably really like it. I just see wasn't there's ready. something that's exact. There's something about. All of this, I don't, here's, I guess like for me that there is something about, there is a humbleness to Dean Martin mm -hmm. that Frank Sinatra does not have. And there's not to say that Frank Sinatra can't be charming because in a weird, like kind of abusive boyfriend way, he's, he's kind of charming. <laughs> but Dean Martin just like, he doesn't seem as a, like aggressive as he seems like he's probably just going to ignore you. Yeah. And that's not the, say, to say that that's attractive, but it's just that he there's there's like a, a sweetness to him that at its worst just seems like he just like would would close the door and, and not speak to you. <laughs> yeah. Whereas like I feel like Frank Sinatra would like punch me in the face. There must be something to it for both of you that that has to do with when he was making movies like the era, like the is it the, the way he dresses or that Rat Pack cool that does it or, or what? I mean, they're definitely handsomer, more charming people. He's very funny. He he's a funny guy. Too. What are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> All right. We don't okay. have to get into it. <laughs> no, but I won't make any judgments about Dean Martin anymore. I'll, I'll, I'll lay off Dino. But uh, 
yeah, I mean, it's got to be something about that generation, like when he was making movies that adds to the attraction. I don't, I mean, for me, not really, because that, that's like, I, I mean, I mean, I've said this before, like the 60s was like kind of a shit, shit show. <laughs> like there was so much, I don't like that, like, the, you know, he, there's very, something very 1950s about Dean Martin's masculinity, I think. Mm-hmm. And what I find attractive about him really has to do with, again, that sort of sweetness, but also the fact that he's just naturally very funny. The fact that he is this like perfect, he he can play the straight man perfectly in a very charming way. And then he can get wacky if he needs to. And there's an ease to him. Like he has an, a very improv, you know, anything goes kind of perfect reaction times, good expressions. Uh, you know, he has a nice voice. It really is less about the mystique, you know, like whenever it gets into the Rat Pack stuff, that's when I kind of tune out. Mm. Well, and the perfectly tailored suits also must have a lot to do with it. I mean, well, yeah, but he has more of that 50s suit stuff, you know, it's more it's it gets a little more zoot suity. High waisted. Boxy. Yeah, I feel like outfits wise, he's got one in Bells Are Ringing that I I love the pink sweater look. Oh my god! Really, like I recreated that look when I was in high school, and like made Bellamy take a picture of me in it, posing like him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so l- real quick, let's let's just say that the the movie that you chose is Bells Are Ringing, mm-hmm. person. And so she gets really invested in everybody's lives to the point where it's rather extreme. She she plays matchmaker and she's like Santa Claus for one little boy on the phone. And she's in love with uh, Plaza O double four double three, which is Dean Martin, a struggling playwright. And he has to write a play uh, without the help of his partner. And he's struggling, and so she decides to take matters into her own hands and go to his apartment and motivate him in person, pretending to be someone named Melisande Scott. And they have a bit of a whirlwind romance from there. I love this movie. And Zoe, you love this movie. Why do you love this movie? It's so it's so delightful. It just makes me so happy. <laughs> I'm not also not a big like movie rewatcher type person. And I've seen this movie like six times. Like I wow. cannot get enough of it. I like this movie, but I don't know. I've seen it a couple of times. The last time I saw this was probably the 90s. So I, I didn't have a strong memory of it, but I remember liking it just fine and watching it again. I liked it just fine, but it's definitely fluffy. It's it's extremely likable. I'll, I'll definitely give it that. But it's got just such a, an absurd plot that it's hard to like. It just feels like... You know, a play brought to film, which is exactly what it is. Like the plot is just, you know, extremely silly and it it's just serves as 
a structure to to hang well mainly Judy Holiday's great performance like she's she just gives everything she's got in this role like it, it's just such a a showpiece for her various talents singing and comedy and and voices and all that showbiz Broadway razzmatazz she she brings it to this movie and it's so it's hard not to enjoy it on that level but other than the charm of the two main stars it's i don't know it just feels a little minor to me i, I don't get completely sucked into it i disagree well <laughs> you know it's interesting you know judy holiday was in the the play version of this which came out gosh 56 oh yeah you're right see you already know you maybe you can tell us more about this i was gonna say that you know it was her and it was sydney chaplin in dean martin's role which you can actually hear the recording, the cast recording exists, which I've listened to in the past. It's kind of interesting. I think I kind of prefer Dean Martin's voice. Yeah, me too. I know that Judy Holiday was dating Sidney Chaplin. I did not know that. Yeah. And it was like a weird romance that did not end well. And so I think that she had a weird time making this movie. That, that's the one thing from all the Dean Martin biographies that I've now read. Uh, I was always like, oh boy, let's, I can't wait to hear about what happened with bells are ringing. Like they have such great chemistry. Like it's gotta be like really intriguing. And there's really not that many behind the scenes stories that I found, except for the fact that apparently Judy Holiday was not having a good time making this movie and that she felt like she was too old and too fat and like all these things that are like, you look at her and you're like, that's insane. <laughs> you look like beautiful and you, you're like amazing in this movie. But um, yeah, it just sounds like she she was having a, a rough time, which sucks because I, I I'm with you. Like I think this movie is so so charming. The plot is silly, but the heart of this film is just about like taking chances and like having somebody come out of the blue and help you dig you out of your own depression. I mean, like <laughs> like that's attractive to anyone. Like you know, that's like what everyone wants. <laughs> Well, I, I actually find this plot really, you know, it could be remade as a current movie really easily because it's all about getting involved in people's lives anonymously. Like it, it really could translate to like internet relationships really easily or, you know, your various avatars that you have online and, you know, being different, a different person for different people because you don't have to put yourself out there. You only have to put a version of yourself out there. And it, it seems like that's really what... Judy Holiday clearly has, or Ella Peterson clearly has some sort of, you know, she loves people, but she's got this sort of social phobia where she doesn't really want to put herself out there in person. She just wants to sort of anonymously get involved in people's lives. And, and yeah, they should, they should make a bells are ringing for the internet age because it would translate pretty well. I would like that. That would be fun. Would they keep the same songs though? I love the songs. With some adjustments, I guess. But... <laughs> Plaza 033 would have to be his like screen name. <laughs> well, I want to hear more about what you love about this movie in particular. What's your favorite song? Like, uh, the, the, I'll have to say the music in this movie really, really grew on me. The first time I watched it, I, I was a little bit mixed on this film because I loved Judy Holiday. I loved Dean Martin. And I thought that the movie itself was just a little bit stodgy, like Bart was saying. It does feel like a like, you know, a play on, on a screen as opposed to just like a full on movie. And I also, the, the musical number about gambling where there's a character who is, you know, pulling this grift where he looks like he's selling classical records, but really what it is, is a horse betting. And so, you know, people call up and they're like, you know, give me a 
five Tchaikovsky's and he, you know, he knows that that's this horse that he's putting money on. So it's a whole scheme. And then they end up singing this like really long song about what means what within the code. So it's like a slightly useless song in the sense that like, like, okay, like this isn't something I need to memorize as the audience. Uh, It's like clever, you know, but, um, and, and, and look, I love guys and dolls, like guys and dolls is one of my like favorite musicals, but uh, that, that's, that sort of stuff kind of wears on me, but I find most of the music in this really charming. Yeah. I like basically all of the songs. I remember like the first time I, I saw this, and just like the first like four songs or or whatever, I was like, man, these are all so good. And like writing down the names of them so I could like add them to my playlist. But I think I like I Met a Girl the Best. I think that's my favorite. It's a cute song. It's so good. It's so cute. I, I don't like the way that it's like filmed in this movie. I think a lot of the musical numbers are filmed really strangely, but I love that song. Pretty much all of the numbers are really like makes it really clear that they're on a sound stage and it doesn't seem like much has been changed from the the stage choreography. I've definitely seen musical numbers done worse, uh, especially in the sixties. Like we, you know, we've talked about my fair lady and, and Camelot and some of the, the staging of, of songs in those musicals are terrible, just really uninteresting. And this movie, at, at least like everything is, is energetic. People are, you know, moving and, having a good time it's easy to get sucked into the these you know and they're all pretty fast moving songs with with clever lyrics i mean there isn't i think jenna you were you're saying that uh, there isn't much in this that works out of context pretty much all of the songs talk about plot points so specifically that it's hard to hear them outside of the context of the movie or you know n- there aren't many pop singers who'd want to take them on i don't think but the songs are a lot of fun well, I like in, in, in Just Met a Girl, it's like Dean Martin fighting against a crowd, yeah. right? That's that one. And he's yeah. like walking through this like absolute sea of people. And the, the sort of ends with him like literally walking into traffic as multiple taxi cabs <laughs> hit him. And he's still just like wandering in and singing about how this girl he just met, which to me, I, I really tickles me. All the sort of New York jokes in this really tickle me. Like, you know, just before then, when they're standing on the street corner and she's telling him, you know, like, just say hi to people like, you know, she's talking to him about essentially, you know, expanding his horizons. Like, you know, again, this like idea that he's like, he's just so depressed and stuck in his own box. And she's like, the world's what you make of it. Like, you can you can say hello to a stranger. It's like, you know, it's not going to kill you. And, you know, he turns to this guy next to him and he's like, that guy doesn't want to say hello. He would be like, wants a cup of blood or something. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I've, yeah, I've been there, you know, like, I feel, I feel that. <laughs> the I Met a Girl musical number, I I like it in terms of like, I think it's because I think that everything, all the musical numbers are very much soundstage E, but also like, surprisingly cinematic, like the do it yourself musical number, like with the mirror and the use of that. I think like they could have done that in a more interesting way, probably. But I love that it's that's you can do that on a stage. That would be really boring on a stage and would look silly. And I think that's interesting for 1960 and where musicals go from there and where where Vincent Minnelli was coming from uh, with like Gene Kelly stuff, where it was like, this is a stage. This is a 10 minute long ballet that we're going to see now, you know? Yeah, Bart. <laughs> I'm not complaining. I just, you know, the Broadway origins of this film are, are very clear when it actually has like taxi cabs and, and 
hundreds of people on the stage. It feels less like it could be on a Broadway stage, obviously, but it's still like there are only, it seems like there's so few sets in this movie. I mean, that was mainly what I remembered from my original viewing of this was the Suzanne Serphone office, like that set, which we're in, we spend a lot of time in. And then that, uh, that one park set where uh, you see like the Manhattan Bridge and there's so much of the movie is just set in those two places. And it feels, you know, I want to get out of those spaces a little bit more. I don't know about that. We see the party. She goes to the the beatnik cafe place, the dentist's office. She goes to his apartment. I feel like we see a decent amount of places. I love his apartment. Mm -hmm. It's so like dream Manhattan apartment, but also very 60s at the same time. I love the beatnik bar. Who's going to be the beatnik in your your remake of this is can't be brando would it be like tiktok boys (laughs) i was thinking chalamet (laughs) oh sorry i cut you off though zoe you were saying about this cafe which is amazing yeah i love that scene i was wondering what you guys thought of it because i think it's like it's really funny and i think like it's a a very loving like send-up of marlon brando and like his his like caricature is pretty accurate but also, like, for 1960, like, it feels dated to be making fun of beatniks, which, like, feels, it feels right that a Dean Martin movie would be, like, feeling a little dated by 1960, because that's kind of how he is in the 60s. It it does feel a little bit like an older generation trying to capture mm-hmm. a younger generation and being a little bit you know, out of sync with it in 1960. So it's sort of charming in that way and a little little off for that reason. But yeah, it, it's fun and it's definitely loving. And I love that it's Frank Gorshin, who's the Riddler on the Batman show. <laughs> I was just going to say, I love that, that they make, that's the one thing about Brando where it's like, I, I think it actually, like I'm with you. I don't think that this is necessarily like, it's not an anti-Brando movie. They're definitely poking fun at him, but I think he was an easy person to kind of poke fun at, especially at this time. But just that Frank Gorshin is like the, you know, looks wise is completely incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) And what they should have done is they should have gotten young Burt Reynolds. I don't know if you guys have seen Burt Reynolds doing his Brando impersonation on Twilight Zone. I have not. It's like awesome. <laughs> it's really good. And and you don't even realize when when cuz him without the mustache, you're like, "Oh shit, he actually does kind of look like Marlon Brando." <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's the only thing is just that Frank Gorshin is like this is this is a world where Dean Martin's the only good-looking guy <laughs> in all of New York City and you're like, "Yeah, all right." Well, you get Jerry Mulligan in there who Judy Holiday ended up, I think dating maybe not marrying but she was with him to the end of her life which was just five years after this movie she died of breast cancer i think this was her final film i'm not sure we mentioned that but uh yeah her first date in the film was jerry mulligan the sax player who she ended up recording a bunch of records with and uh you know he's kind of cute and the the guy uh dating her her friend he's he's kind of cute he's okay he seems nice. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we talked a lot about Dean Martin, but uh, I don't know if you have anything that you want to say specifically about Judy Holiday. I love her. I just like every single person I know who's watched a movie that had her in one film has gone on to watch all of her movies because she is just so charming and so real and such a 
breath of fresh air for this era of women too. I mean, like there's so many sexy women in the sixties. There's so many, you know, very serious women, but she really, she brings in such a great comedic sensibility uh, and is sexy and sweet on top of it. You know, it's like, she's like the, you know, full package. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd love her. I think I first saw her in Adam's rib, the Hepburn and Spencer Tracy movie. Yeah, where she has like a pretty small part and even just watching her in that which like she's probably got all of 15 minutes of screen time like she was just so captivating so funny so charming and like seeking out her lead roles after that was just like wonderful to see and I learned about this movie through the uh you must remember this the podcast episode on Judy Holiday so Mm. going in with like the context of what her life was like and the difficulty she had with the studio because her body was not stick thin. It made it even more interesting to see her in this where she is just like a ray of sunshine the entire time. She like is truly what makes the movie so great. And she's like that in most of her movies. She's usually the best part. Born Yesterday is my go-to Judy Holiday movie. Probably most people's actually. And I, I love her in that. I think that's the only movie of hers that I think is really just a solid, great movie from beginning to end. Like I love watching her in, in everything else, you know, the marrying kind and oh, what else? solid gold Cadillac and things like that, but they're not terrific movies, but born yesterday is just fantastic. Did she won? Didn't she win an Academy award for that one? Mm-hmm. That's the one to seek out in this movie. She's just kind of in Broadway warhorse mode, a little too much for me. You know, it's funny because I I think there's a there's a very easy way to dismiss her in this film as just playing the muse and, you know, that being like sort of its own dated, which not to say it's not like fun or, you know, it doesn't make for an enjoyable script. But like watching it this time around, I actually sort of I realized and I mean, it's there. I mean, maybe this is just me. I like but it just I I sort of realized uh, just how interesting her character is. And I think that's the big reason why I love this film and why I connect to it, because there's something I mean, there's something very romantic about this movie. And I was trying to figure it out because I'm not into the like, let's prop up the, the man and make his dreams come true. And oh, what a wonderful romance. I can't wait to like do your dishes. <laughs> you know, like, like, that's not normally the thing that that excites me. But uh, that's not, not even like what's happening in this film. I realized this time around that it's more about this, you know, this woman who's trying to fix everything for everyone but herself, you know, and that she needs somebody who has the same confidence in her as she has in everybody else. It's an interesting character that you don't normally get to see. Yeah, I I kind of had a similar experience watching this this time around, kind of thinking about like the fact that a lot of the plot does center around her, like trying to fix this man's life and very little is about, from his perspective, is about her inner life. And that had been something that like the last couple of times I'd watched it, I'd been thinking about, but there is something about the empathy that she has and just like the love that she wants to give to everybody that like is so heartwarming and such like a important part of her personality that like, I think it's interesting as this story about like selflessness and also about learning how to be selfish because that is also important. Yeah. 
And there was that one line in the end that also like totally it got me a little bit choked up this time around where, where Dean Martin, you know, and everything all said and done and everything's revealed. And he goes, you know, you're so what, you know, she's like, oh, I'm ashamed. Like, you know, I lied to you and you don't even love me. You love the, this character that I was playing. And he like sister, he's like, you know, you have so much love to give. Why don't you, you know, why don't you give some to, to me? You know, it's like, you know, instead of like, you know, passing this around, you know, like cause he's sort of saying, you know, love yourself, like you're saying to, to be selfish you know, let me love you. And and it was like, fuck, like, I mean, I wish that the, it spent a little bit more time on that instead of just the one line. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, it really like it really hit me this time. And I, there's also an interesting commentary in here about just how men fall in love, you know, that the, that he does see her as this extension of himself and as his muse. And she has that whole she has this mini arc, at least, where she's, you know, depressed because she got exactly what she wanted. And it wasn't enough. You know, she tricks him into, you know, thinking like, here I am, your muse, I can make your whole life better, I can fix everything. And she fixes everything for him. He's doing great. He takes her to this miraculous, you know, party that was every single star and then that really funny name dropping song. And, you know, and she finds herself like, oh, this actually wasn't at all what I wanted, you know, like I wanted him to love me for, for who I was actually, you know, and, and she kind of, you know, and he even, uh, I mean, he's kind of half-assedly proposes marriage to her and she's like, yeah, actually I gotta go, you know, and, and that's cool. I mean, like, I don't know, there's something for 1960 for a play that was, you know, came out in 56. Like I, it's nice to see a, a female character who has that bit of agency. It's not, you know, anything to, rally feminism around in the year 2022 but like you know it it, it is neat it, you know and, and i think that also just that judy holiday uh has such a degree of palpable empathy that it really does it just sells that character so well see i didn't find myself connecting to that character very well until that scene you're talking about at the party where she's just really uncomfortable like that's when i finally figured out who she is it's like she's playing so many different characters up to that point that it's hard to connect to really figure out who she is. And it's sort of really nice when Dean Martin shows up and he's just, you know, really confident in who he is and, and you know, is just playing, you know, the most charming version of Dean Martin. And you see why she you know is in love with him because he's just this image of charm and knows knows exactly who he is. And I found myself connecting to him before I connected to her in this movie, watching it this time. Hmm. We do, I guess we do see him like without him putting on any sort of persona to be like the charming guy who who dates a lot of women. Like we just see him be really depressed. So like we see the real him, I guess, before we see the real her. And yeah, I think you're right. Like that scene is finally where she kind of lets her guard down or not lets her guard down, like drops the act and finally is like, I'm not Melisande Scott. Like I... I'm myself. Yeah. I guess that's also, I mean, that's why Dean Martin's so great in this too, is that he goes from being this total schlub. I mean, like he's such a loser, (laughs) you know, like he's sitting there just like drinking uh, himself to death over because he can't write anything on a page. And, you know, that's also very relatable. (laughs) And that great pink sweater, which, which, uh, you know, you were going to talk a bit about that and then I cut you off to introduce the film. Oh yeah. I mean, I just like, I loved that outfit. I think I, I probably like took a screenshot of it the first time I saw this. Cause I'm just always taking screenshots of like outfits that I like 
in movies that I wish I could have or want to recreate. Hell yeah. And that was one where I was like, it's pretty doable. Like it's a white collar shirt, black pants and a pink sweater. And I think I just like went to Goodwill and found the pink sweater and wore it to school and was very excited about it. Just like (laughs) internally for myself. Nice. (laughs) I've I've 100% done things like that where you're like yeah I look just like (laughs) yeah I look like just like something that no one's ever gonna realize or or recognize but uh yeah no I love you know what I love too is her pink dress uh when she first enters his apartment Mm -hmm. and it's this sort of like god I don't even know how to describe it it's like this sort of like tool like almost like a very wide plaid but like pink striped dress it's just so beautiful the the costumes in this are really great i also love everyone's like makes fun of her red opera dress which i like love <laughs> i'm like i would wear that <laughs> something out of la traviata <laughs> yeah it's so good see i don't know why you two are denying it there really is something about the era like just listening to you talk about the costumes like why why all three of us why are we all drawn to these films that were you know popular in 1960 why aren't we feeling this way about movies that are coming out now just these pieces of well-made fluff that come out now like why why do we have to go back 60 years to to get excited about films like this i uh i mean i i i don't know i feel like it is it takes a certain kind of person to want to really invest themselves in classic cinema like this it's not really something that you can force on anybody Okay, you you got me, Bart. You finally convinced me. <laughs> you you got my number here, and I and I'm trying now. I'm af, now I'm thinking about it. I would say that for the clothing, the one thing that I do very much miss, and this is like almost like a throwaway thought, but maybe maybe there's something here. I have no idea. You tell me that the thing that I uh, am attracted to, especially when we talk about these costumes, is that the cuts of clothing were so much more flattering to female figures back then. Whereas now, if I go out and try and buy a dress in a store, it looks like a bag and mm. it's in small, medium, large, and I look awful. I, my, my body type looks so terrible in these dresses. And so I would much rather be wearing some like more form-fitted, tailored outfit that makes me actually look like I'm attractive, <laughs> that fools everyone into thinking I'm attractive than, you know this sort of like, you know, something that's just comfortable, I guess. But so I don't know, maybe like that's something very even superficial about that, that I sort of end up being drawn to this because I I see, you know, what uh, in my mind is just the definition of cool. I'm pretty freaked out by the sizes of the waists in these movies, like the belts that all of these women wear, like they all have just the tiniest waist. Like that's not... Well, that's a waist training that, you know, that that's that was. Yeah, they're wearing corsets, which I don't wear. So, yeah. Should we all be wearing corsets? No, because but I'm talking about literally like you can't you can't talk to a man about this. (laughs) This is like this is the one time that I'm going to just say, like, men don't understand. Is that like the cuts of dresses like this? You know, it has a waist. Yeah. Yeah. The way that pink (laughs) dress is structured. It's structured. exactly (laughs) like there's no like i i don't know how else it's like i i could show you on a chart but like it's just that (laughs) that to me is part of it but i don't know i mean i guess i'll say that my my favorite scene in this entire film is just in time which is also the almost the stagiest of all of them where they're right by uh, the manhattan bridge i know exactly the part of manhattan 
it's the the midtown east uh, my grandmother used to live not too far away from that exact area that they're they're recreating in that scene so i know exactly where it is and i love that they do this little song and dance for everybody and he's like he also i mean and this is maybe also just catering to me now but like it he's doing a martin and lewis routine with judy holiday and it just makes me be like man i wish you were i like i wish that jerry lewis had been judy (laughs) (laughs) like throughout because she does it so well and they're doing this kind of throwback silly little you know it's both romantic and and just fun and even a throwback for 1960 to a, a simpler time and I love the song. I mean, that's the one song that that you can sing uh, outside of this movie that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but it just it showcases just both of them so, so well. And I think just that sense of humor and that I don't know, there's a sweetness to this movie. And I think that's really the thing that that draws me to this in particular. I don't know about the 60s, but yeah. What do you think, Zoe? Why older movies as opposed to newer ones? A good question. In terms of like, like if, if I'm thinking about like melodrama and that type of stuff, like I like the way that old movies aren't trying to recreate reality as closely as I think new movies are. Like I think that movies have lost a little bit of their ability to like be silly without us all just like laughing at it and being like that's stupid. And I think old movies like have all these unintentionally like kind of camp moments I guess now that I really like and I wish that newer movies would have too where like it's just like this is not how people act but it's how people in this movie act and I believe it because of the the world that you've built in the movie yeah, even watching something you know, like Rear Projection is yeah. totally acceptable in a movie like this, but you see it now, you know, some, some terrible green screen work, and it takes you right out of the movie. And I, I think I like that, too, is like going back to a time where you could fudge it a little and people would still believe and I, that there's a, there is a certain innocence to that that's appealing. Yeah, and I think even like like stuff like Italian neorealism, which is trying to imitate life. Like, I think it still has that quality of like being a little bit more heightened than something now that would be trying to be really realistic. And I like that. I like that. Like, like Anna Magnani is always going to be like a level above, like (laughs) where a person is. (laughs) Yeah. This is, this is, I think you, you've, maybe you just hit the nail on the head then. Is it just that we all enjoy having an imagination and we just wish that we weren't being spoon fed constantly? Cause I feel like that is definitely my biggest issue. And even with things like, you know, I, for some reason, like, well, I'm not for some reason, I immediately think of like a Marvel movie, which is, you know, it is on its face, a ridiculous thing. And yet those movies are so like they're trying so hard to make this the most real possible version of these characters. And then when you go back and read an actual comic book, the thing I like about it are the colors and like the the art, you know, and like the the fact that it doesn't feel real. Like that's why I wanted to go to this comic book to begin with. You know, so, so when you're watching some movie where and, and now even like, you know, especially the bigger blockbusters, they've really even lost their sense of style as far as what they're making. Like everything is just getting closer and closer to we want to show the real, ver- you know, the 
what would this look like? You know, it's like that creepy, you guys have seen that picture, like that somebody photoshopped like 10, 20 years ago of Homer, if Homer was a real man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like horrifying. Like, I feel like that's what we've moved towards. <laughs> it's like, no, I'd much rather watch The Simpsons. Like, I'd rather see someone like, you know, this, this entire world of yellow skinned people and like, be like, yeah, that's what, you know, I got it. Yeah, I think the move towards kind of looking at plot holes and nitpicks and stuff probably is part of what got us here. Like just like that, the internet trend of that, I think mm -hmm. where like, I just want to be able to be like, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's a movie. It's just right. doing what it needs to do. Oh my God. Preach. <laughs> <laughs> I also like the style of performance in older movies, like the lack of, realism it's it's so much more connected to stage performance you know it's in the 60s is sort of the transition out of that style into new hollywood and, and people adopting the you know marlon brando method style of acting as the only way to act but i uh yeah just the the heightened reality of all of it i think i think you're right that is that's a huge part of why these movies are so appealing yeah and i think even like as much as everybody wants to imitate Marlon Brando, he also is totally that heightened style of reality, like turned up to 10 where, you know, like him and him and Tennessee Williams stuff, like it's a bit of a caricature more than a character, but it works so well. Yeah. I mean, just the way that Frank Gorshin does Marlon Brando in this movie and putting his hand inside his shirt, you realize, yeah. That, oh yeah, all of all Marlon Brando's ticks are really studied. Like there's nothing natural about this. This is him knowing mm -hmm. exactly what he's doing, uh, trying to look natural when he's acting. But uh, yeah, I think I have this theory that uh, most people who are into movies, their, their interest, their, what they, what they enjoy kind of peaks at the age 11, like whatever was out, whatever was big when you were 11, like that's, that's, that's the beginning of film for a lot of people. And for a while that was actually true for me. I didn't want to, you know, I, I probably watch more older movies than, than most people my age, but not that many. Like I really just wanted to see current stuff. So many people who are passionate about film, I think still kind of have, there's there's a certain kind of block against older films. I mean, I, I work at a college and there, you know, I talk to film students there, people who are really passionate about, uh, you know, um, Sai Ming Liang or, you know, slow cinema or, you know, also, you know, lots of really interesting art cinema that's out now. But, you know, it, it, it does take a certain kind of person to want to go back in time and, and watch these older movies. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know how to get people interested in this stuff. It, it might not be possible. Yeah, that is true. I think like with the way that social media has brought a lot of us together and helped people discover it, I think it was probably also people who were going to get into it at some point into old movies. I mean, it's definitely that, you know, we've talked about movies as time travel and i think that's that's for sure you know a great way to get anyone interested if if you at some point just think like well what, what was it like back then you know that's immediately you're you're going to be a, a mark <laughs> for for old movie watching but yeah i don't know i mean i don't know about this theory about it. i'm looking at all the movies that came out when i was 11 and they're really terrible <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you've always considered yourself a bit of a late bloomer when it comes to movies. I know. I mean, well, I, I just never, I was never an obsessive movie watcher, but I also, it, it, when my obsessive movie watching happened, it had a lot to do with what was available. You know, actually when, when renting movies from your, your store, uh, was always great because you had so, you had like everything, <laughs> you know, and, and like growing up, it was like Blockbuster and Hollywood video. And then, um, when I was in college, I started to, you know, rent movies from the college, which were always more interesting and, you know, and also renting from a local library that I lived across the street from. And I had so much free time and I didn't have any friends. <laughs> so it was just like nonstop. That's when I got really crazy about movie watching. But it was, you know, it was availability. And I think maybe that's another thing is just that you mentioned, uh, Zoe, about like early Netflix where they did have more interesting things and now they don't have anything. I mean, like Amazon Prime has a really, really weird mix of older movies, like weird, like really bizarre cult films exist on amazon prime streaming it's always a surprise when when something is on there so strange and so like they it's not that they're not out there but it is harder to access stuff legally uh with um streaming movies right now that are before you know i don't know like the 80s even i i feel like that is definitely i i know many more people that oh yeah i love older movies but they won't go past 1980 yeah, you have to already know that you're interested in that stuff to subscribe to TCM or Criterion or whatever. Mm -hmm. You can't just stumble on some great older movie on PBS or uh, I don't know. Is the death of cable part of that? I mean, like I, I haven't I don't have cable and I don't I own a TV, but I don't know that I watch TV much more than I, I when I was younger. It was the only option. Mm -hmm. And then you could really stumble onto like TCM or like if I mean, or even I mean, there's a channel I've, I've talked about this before. There's a channel I get on my I don't have cable. So I get like three channels. And one of them is called movies exclamation point. And uh, they play pretty good stuff, actually. And you know, you can it's it's free, but I don't know anyone else who's watching it. Save for like one other person who ever knew what I was talking about when I brought it up. But like, you know, it was a great way to stumble into something. There's movies that like used to show up on TV that, uh, you know, I remember bits and pieces of. And then later in life, you're like, what the hell was that one? <laughs> you like go back and find it. So, yeah, I mean, there is something for sure about being mistakenly introduced to these things, even garnering interest that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I found a lot of great things from, you know, a decade before I was, you know, I'm an 80s kid, and so, but uh, so a lot of 70s movies I stumbled on just because they got shown all the time on TV, you know, Three Days of the Condor. You know, it just, that's how I sort of got into, you know, sort of eased my way back in time is uh, is through these these movies that I would stumble on on TV. Like, I, I didn't want to see black and white necessarily when I was... 11, 11, at 11 for sure, I didn't want to see black and white movies, but you can't really ease your way back now. You know, you have to be really purposeful about it. Yeah, I definitely, like when I think of the people I know, most of them don't have cable. They probably have maybe like Hulu or Netflix and I, I don't have Hulu, so I don't know what the uh, selection is like on there, but I imagine it's probably not a very big selection of old movies. And of course, Netflix is really... <laughs> dire right now and yeah like when I was in middle school and I watched 
how to marry a millionaire because I just saw it pop up on Netflix and I was bored like that having that type of experience even just a couple years later now is like much harder because you got to be kind of looking through the dregs of Amazon Prime to find the old movies you got to be yeah kind of intentional with it in order to get there so Zoe do you have a list of movies to get younger people which doesn't have to be I can define it however you want into 60s movies or, or how to how to garner interest. And so I'm guessing Bells Are Ringing would be one of your choices. Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of 60s movies, I'm not super sure. I mean, I think like Psycho is a great one. I Because I've made kind of lists of old movies to get people into old movies before. And usually I have a lot more stuff that's a little bit earlier. But I have a list. Let me pull it up. Let's see if there's anything on there. I loved, as a kid, I loved The Great Race with Natalie Wood. Oh, yeah. Have you guys seen that movie? <laughs> it's my grandparents' favorite movie, so I rewatched it recently with them, and it was amazing. Um, like, I feel like musicals are always a good place to start, because I think, like, at least for me, what was hard with old movies when I started was the pacing. Right. Mm-hmm. And now I'm at the point where, like, newer movies, like... I, I'm not used to the pacing of newer movies anymore, and it takes me a little while to get into it, which I'm I'm kind of excited about. I'm happy with that. But like things that are paced in a way that's pretty quick, like a musical, I think is is good. Or screwball comedies. Yeah, screwball comedies. The like Doris Day Rock Hudson movies, I feel like hmm. would be a fun entry point. How about like older foreign films? I always find those are an even tougher sell. Mm-hmm. You might be into classic Hollywood, but you don't want to see French New Wave movies. But I know that yeah. you you like that stuff as well. What, yeah. What what got you into? I mean, you said Anya Varda, but what got you into older foreign films? I think part of it was just like like a similar experience with the the classic Hollywood stuff of like these are the movies you've got to see you know, Susan Cain, blah, 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 blah. And then when I had seen most of those like huge classics of classic Hollywood, I was like, well, where do I go from here where I can still kind of like learn a little bit more about popular culture and what is like in the the cultural subconscious. One of the very first foreign films I watched was Rashomon because it, it just seemed like a good place to start and I loved it. But yeah, like, you know, I watched, I think my first Godard movie was, actually, I don't remember. Maybe it was Contempt. I don't know, at this point. That we all have Contempt no. for, right? You don't like that film? Yeah, either. I don't like Contempt. <laughs> a Woman is a Woman got me into Godard. A Woman is a Woman is really good. I like that one a lot. Yeah, I feel like it was just a similar experience of like, what are the directors that are well known through foreign films I also I also read a lot of like the Roger Ebert great movie collection reviews that were on his website I've got all Mm. three of those books I found those really interesting too as like a great jumping off point like Cleo from five to seven was one of the first foreign films I watched too and it was directly because of his review of it and then I like got it from the library and was fascinated by it yeah I I think I probably got into it in a similar way. It's like, 
how do I make my film education complete? What are the movies I have to see? And I did delve into more challenging things when the easier to watch things were when I was done with all of those. I always yeah. get annoyed when people like, oh, it has subtitles. I don't want to do that. I'm like, don't you spend all your day on your phone? Like, what are you doing on your phone? You're reading. You're reading words that are showing up in lines very quickly and replying. You know, it's like that's all you're doing in a subtitled film is you're reading the same damn text. But actually speaking about difficult movies, I'm curious, Zoe, if you, um, you know, a lot of another reason that people give for not watching older films is that they're offensive, <laughs> which mm -hmm. is totally fair. Like 100% yeah. fair. There's plenty of bullshit. And especially, I mean, even from the the basic levels of just how, how lame so many female characters are to how creepy so many men are to, uh, you know, clear racism, you know, like it runs the gamut. But I was curious how it is that you sort of handle that. I mean, are, is that something that bothers you? Is it something that you can sort of see in the context of the time? Like, you know, how do you sort of explain that, uh, you know, your enjoyment of these films? Yeah, it definitely bothers me. And I do I do have trouble with it sometimes, you know, depending on the the severity of how offensive something is. Hmm. <laughs> it's a good it's a good question. We won't cancel you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I did notice in Bells Are Ringing that there are a lot of black faces in it in in crowd scenes. And Asian, you know, it's, it's pretty multicultural to look at the people in the crowd scenes, but nobody but white people get dialogue or, or songs. Oh, sure. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that was, you know, as consciously, I, I mean, I guess it's probably just a New York thing. Minnelli said, oh, we've got to have, you know, it's not just white people in New York City. We've got to have, we've got to have all types. So, mm -hmm. well, you know, there's one thing about Judy Holiday and about this film too. I really like that. Sue's answer phone is in Brooklyn Heights and that it looks like a, you know, burned out heap is very funny because Brooklyn Heights nowadays is a very expensive neighborhood because it's of its proximity to Manhattan. But there is something very Jewish about Judy Holiday, which I appreciate uh, in general in her. Like, you know, she's not hiding that. And it comes through in, in the way that she says certain things Her just like, you know, her reactions to her accent and you know that's something that i i really like not that that makes up for the lack of diversity but like there is like i think that there is at least that much uh happening in this film even though it's not called out and i think you know pearson is not meant to be a jewish name but it's there you know holiday isn't a jewish name either it's not a real last name mm -hmm. yeah i guess i guess i just try to hold two things in tension hold that I like something and that something is is really bad intention. I find this especially hard with Westerns, I think. Mm. Like with Westerns, I just, it feels abysmal to me, the treatment of like indigenous people. But yeah, I'm I'm always trying to kind of like be able to not be in the middle because it's not, it's not like a middle issue, <laughs> but be able to acknowledge the the problems and that they are systemic to Hollywood at the time and currently and appreciate like the things that I I like about them and to seek out like I think it's it's the fact that you have to really seek out representation in these movies is obviously a problem but like seeing movies like Cabin in the Sky and The Crimson Kimono like were really significant for me too like 
seeing people trying to push for change at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I think Dean Martin actually coming back to him is a really good example of this, because if you look at like Dean Martin in popular culture is meant to be Mr. Ladies Man Rat Pack. And yet the things that I like about Dean Martin is that he really wasn't that person in a lot of ways. I mean, he was actually that person. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the stuff that I like about Dean Martin isn't at all the stuff that, you know, Joe New Jersey uh, loves about Dean Martin with his poster uh, on the wall of the Rat Pack. So, I mean, I guess maybe part of this is just that, is that there are these certain qualities and things about somebody that you really like, whether or not you think that their entirety or what they symbolize is the thing that you love and, and finding out sort of, I mean, to me, a lot of it too is like, and I think I've, I've talked about this before, but like, you know, using like Marilyn Monroe as an example, I mean, like, you know, you grow up and you see this image of her. And for me, I dismissed her for age. I mean, she was pretty, but I just didn't care. And then when you actually watch a Marilyn Monroe movie, you're like, oh my God, this woman is like, great. <laughs> you know, like that she's talented, that she really does have something that's very fascinating. And then you learn more about her. And then you learn this sort of the image versus the reality and you can see these moments of humanity shining through her. And so like the thing that becomes fascinating to me then is everything in between the lines. And maybe that's also part of what I like about a lot of these sixties movies. And, and we've talked about this part where the things that couldn't be said and how they still kind of shine through, uh, despite the fact that they're very actively trying to, to hide this, you know, and they're very actively showing you like the Hollywood dream version of something. And then you like, you know, you see someone like just make one little like, you know, flinch and you're like, ah, there it is. <laughs> yeah. That's the truth right there. Well, that's like the prostitution ring and, and bells are ringing. It's like they can't name it, but we all know what they're talking right. about. And that's one of the silliest parts of the plot is that they think Suzanne's her phone is like for people to get call girls. And, and so the cops are always hanging around. But it is so funny how these things that can't be spoken are essential parts of these movies that, that can't even talk about them. Yeah, I just did my my senior thesis was on queer coding in uh, Laurence Olivier's Richard III adaptation, Ooh. and like, which was so fun. And doing a deep dive into that was awesome because I love Ralph Richardson so very much and I got to focus on him. But the the queer coding in old movies, like for as an example of like it can't be said, but it's it's there and it's so clearly there, like is also really interesting to me in like the, the similar way of like the way that prostitution couldn't be talked about. I also feel like there are a lot of gay people in showbiz. There are yeah. a lot of Jewish people in showbiz. So both of those things are going to be in these movies, whether you uh, you know, it's part of the plot of the movie or not. And uh, and I think that that's why it's so fun to pick out these things that you know they're there and you can find them if you look for them mm -hmm. is there anything else that you wanted to say about bells are ringing or about anything else that we were talking about i can tell you guys a little a little rat pack story if you want from my own life would you be interested in hearing yes. that? <laughs> yeah absolutely so down by the the pier in seattle there's inexplicably these six statues of the Rat Pack and Angie Dickinson. They're kind of like weird caricatures of them and there's no reason they're there. Like they're just there because I don't think any of them are from Seattle. 
No. Yeah, like I don't know why they're there, but they are. And I found out about them through a friend. And then just like a lot of times my freshman year of college would make everybody walk down there because I was walking distance when I was at school. And there was one time a, a like a security guard was there. And um, I was like, I think I probably like had my arm like on the Dean Martin statue, like for a photo we were taking and was just like leaning on it while we were talking. And the uh, security guard came up and was looking at me and was like, I dare you to name the the two people that you're in between. So, of course, I went down the whole line and said everybody's name. And he was shocked. And then <laughs> he was like, no one ever knows that it's Angie Dickinson there. And I was like, well, obviously she was in Ocean's Eleven. And then he started explaining Ocean's Eleven to me. But that was like a proud a proud moment for me of like, getting some some useless knowledge I have about the Rat Pack, like, coming into my real life. That's, like, part of it, too, right? Like, you know what? It's funny watching Bells Are Ringing this time around. I was, like, even between the first time that I watched this film and then now, I was, like, I even know I can pick up on even more of the name dropping people mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the lyrics. And you're, like, that's how I know I'm a real, I've become a real cinephile. <laughs> It's nice to just know like references to, to things. It, like I, I also, it's it's fun to sort of unlock the code of watching something older and then getting these like in jokes where they're dropping. You know, like the Brando thing. You could watch this movie and not realize that that's a Brando caricature if you don't know who Brando is. And 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 that's a very simple one one reference. But uh, it's just it's a lot of fun, kind of cracking the code, I guess. Yeah, the the Mary and Ethel bit. Yeah, that's a lot of Broadway history in that song, too. We have to create some code breakers so people can understand what they're on about in these older movies. I guess that's what we're trying to do, right, Bart? Yeah, I guess that's the I, I never point thought of the about show. it, but. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Zoe, for, for coming on with us. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Yeah, it was so fun you. talking to you. And and I really uh, genuinely really love reading what you write on Letterboxd. You always write really thoughtful, great breakdowns and reviews. And for and for Letterboxd, it's all free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, if you guys uh, listening are not already following uh, Zoe, please, uh, you go to letterboxd.com slash Z-O-E loves film and go give her a follow because she's great. 1,354 followers can't be wrong. (laughs) Yeah, you crank out these reviews, these really elaborate reviews that would take me days to write. And you you do, you seem to write a couple of them a day. Really impressed with with your ability to do that. I got really burnt out in 2021 writing Mm. reviews. I had to take a break (laughs) because I was just spending too much time. Because I spent like two hours each on uh, a long review and I needed to give myself some time (laughs) i'm also i'm always amazed you get people that are always commenting that have really also thoughtful things to say and you'll sit there and engage with them and like that's also really cool (laughs) and really it like it's just so nice i mean it's like the best of letterboxd really is yeah what you've got going there yeah i've been so lucky with like the the community that i've happened to find myself in and the people it's a good way to not be alone with our passion yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Go, 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 go.
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.